The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, I'm Rashma Kapadia, Associate Editor at Barron's. Welcome to Managing Your Money, Building Wealth, Even from Scratch. Today with me is Holly Newman-Croft, Managing Director at Newberger Berman. Welcome, Holly. Hi, Rashma. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, you know, we often talk about sort of intergenerational wealth transfers, but in our last Level Up discussion, we really focused on building wealth, even if you were starting with little or had to navigate some of the factors contributing to the racial or gender gaps in this country. And I know at Newberger Berman, you have a long history of working with folks who do have health, wealth, many of whom have built it themselves. So I kind of wanted to start with um, perhaps three lessons or strategies that you can share with us that you think have contributed to their success? You know, you've, what have you learned from, from these folks? You know, what are three sort of quick takeaways for people who are, who are um, trying to build their own wealth? Sure. Um, so look, I think a lot of our clients have uh, built a lot of wealth, but many of them didn't come from, from wealth. And so the number one lesson is to save money. Establish a discipline really early in your career, whether you're in high school and you're a babysitter or you're just starting a career in a big city that's very expensive. No matter how much you can put away, it's a really good practice to start it at an early age because what you what you learn from that and this is sort of lesson number two is to recognize the value of compounding um a famous question in in our industry is we often ask clients would you rather have a penny doubled every day for 30 days or would you rather have someone give you a million dollars it's a trick question, obviously. A million dollars sounds really appealing, but the answer is a penny doubled every day for 30 days, which, which results in over $5 million. And what that teaches you is you start saving young and you maintain your discipline and even a little bit of money can grow into a very big pool of capital. That's and a great that, point. Yeah, you know, we have a one question here from Shoda who actually asked a similar question, you know, if she can get wealth, even if her salary is low. And so what I hear you kind of saying is if you start early, even with a little bit, that compounding really sort of starts adding up, right? Absolutely. I mean, I remember growing up, my parents had me put away a little bit of babysitting money every week. You know, it, it's whatever you can afford to sock away, you're saving it for a rainy day. We, we can plan our future based on the knowns and the expected expenses. We're saving a lot for um, unexpected expenses. So you want to be prepared for that. Yeah. And, and, I would say also my, my third bit of advice, which is equally important, is know yourself, be self-aware, recognize your strengths, and surround, with, surround yourself with people whose strengths complement your weaknesses. So if you look at successful people who have healthy, robust portfolios, 
Many of them are not financial experts or market experts, but they work with people who can teach them and guide them and advise them on how to build and grow their wealth. Yeah, that's really important. And I think when we talked before, you also talked about sort of comfort taking risk, which perhaps comes when you are able to partner with someone. But talk to me a little bit about sort of that comfort taking risk, um, especially when you're thinking about the market and for folks who are just beginning to invest. The younger you are, the longer time horizon you have to build wealth. And statistically, the market goes up 80% of the time. So even in markets like 2022, um, when it feels very uncomfortable watching your portfolios decline, the younger you are, the more risk you want to take and the riskier assets you want to be invested in so that when you are at a later stage in life, contemplating retirement, contemplating thinking about living on a fixed income, you can take some of the risk off the table and reduce the volatility in your portfolio. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, Kirsten's asking what the best strategy is for investing um, beginners. You know, and does that mean sort of dollar cost averaging or what are sort of the, the ways people should be thinking about taking that risk if they are younger? How do they go about doing it? So again, you're you're saving every day and however you're comfortable invest, whether you add money to your portfolio every week, every month, uh, like I said, 80% of the time the market goes up, it would be great to market time and only invest on dips and exit on highs. But, you know, the Hall of Fame of market timers is really an empty room. And so if you just maintain a discipline and get your money in the market, it is and, and stick to your discipline, you will reap the rewards of that. That's such a great point. Um, so I, I do want to remind the audience to submit questions in the Q&A, and we'll try to get them as we talk through, through this with Holly. Um, so we, we were talking about the markets, and obviously investing over the long haul is a great way to build wealth. Um, lately, the market has been very volatile. There's all this talk about recession, inflation. How should investors be thinking about asset allocation, which is really the core of sort of um, people's investing strategies? Yeah, Reshma, that's that's a question that's come up a lot more frequently. We we get that question a lot more in, in volatile and in down markets because it brings about uncertainty and fear in clients regardless of their wealth. Even exceptionally wealthy people don't like to see their portfolios go down. But again, you are creating investment portfolios to invest for the long term and over various market cycles. So if, if you're thinking you have a target return, that's going to be a target return over an, a complete business cycle, which it could be three, five, even seven years. Mm -hmm. So those are going to include some markets like 2020 and 2021, you know, when the market was on fire. And Mark, business cycles, unfortunately, also include years like last year. And what's really important for people to remember, and many forgot it during the 2010 decades, is that part of a healthy functioning market are pullbacks. Mm -hmm. Markets that do nothing but just go up without any care or concern for fundamental analysis or the health of the business that they're investing in or what's going on in the world that these companies are operating in, those are bound to have a significant pullback. And, and we saw that in 2022, and it didn't, it didn't feel so good. Prior to the great financial crisis of, of 08, 09, 
on average, the market saw a 5% pullback twice a year and a 10% pullback once a year. So that's not something to be afraid of. It's, it's almost something to embrace and view it as an, an opportune entry point. Right. And especially for younger investors, right? Because you're getting in on the cheap, which is kind of a great thing to some extent. Um, yeah. And younger investors, younger investors building their wealth, the discipline to save is absolutely number one. Whether you go in on a high or in on a low, you have a long time to keep that money working for you. And at the end of the day, getting it in there is in letting it compound and grow for you is the number one lesson. Yeah, that is a good point. So, I mean, we have seen a shift, obviously, in the interest rate policy of the Fed, which was one of the reasons that we had seen sort of a much smoother ride in a bull market for so long. How is that sort of shift in interest rate policy impacting asset allocation decisions and, and what parts of the market are attractive? Like, give me, a, give me a sense of sort of as you look at this year, you know, what are some of the more attractive parts of the market as the Fed raises rates? Well, listen, the best thing about the interest rate environment that we're in is finally, and for the first time in, in a decade, we can actually get a healthy return from a safe asset class. So when you think about taking risk, and, and I, as I said earlier, you know, you want to be able to take risk off the table as you're getting older, thinking about retiring. Many clients haven't been able to do that because we were in a zero interest rate environment for so long. So now we can get a very healthy return and muni bonds, you know, short duration, high quality muni bonds offer a very healthy return. And in fact, when the market is incredibly volatile, like it was last year, and we, we expect the volatility to continue this year, um, it's muni bonds are a great place to park your money and wait out the volatility also. Mm, that's a good point. Um, so we have a lot of bond questions. So since we okay. brought up bonds, let me let me get at some of these. Um, so we've got some questions about treasury bonds and how you're thinking about those given the rate moves that we've seen. Where what role do they play? Yeah. So treasuries, you know, bonds. It's it's just a question of duration and yield. And for the last number of years, we've been staying quite short duration in anticipation of, of this rate hike cycle. We didn't predict that it would be as, as aggressive as, as it was last year, um, but we're starting to think about extending the duration in our portfolios as the Fed nears the end of this hike cycle. Hmm. So, but, but overall, treasury short duration bonds longer dated bonds, they are all an attractive area to get a healthy return with much lower risk than an equity portfolio. And yeah, that's what- Yeah, we're seeing amazing yields. <laughs> we're seeing ones. amazing yields. And the other area, you know, we were using floating rate products last year as a, as a proxy for an allocation to high yield bonds. And again, as we're nearing the end of the hike cycle, we're thinking about transitioning those floating rate investments more to a fixed rate um, high yield product so that we can lock in the higher rates. Because eventually, eventually the, the Fed will pivot right. um, and start reducing rates. We don't think that's imminent, but, but it will eventually happen. 
Mm, that's a good point. Um, so Bruce is asking, you know, what the best way is um, to build sort of a bond ladder and also more specifically where things should be located, where where a bond ladder should be located. And you and I were talking a little bit about asset allocation and asset location. Um, talk me through some of that in, and how people should be thinking about where they want to put some of these bonds. Okay, so let, let's take that in two parts. So there's um, asset allocation is building um, a portfolio that on a, that re properly reflects your risk profile to achieve a return that won't hopefully provide too much volatility or risk outside of your comfort zone. So your asset allocation is, is so you can sleep at night. Asset location is what investments to put in which entities. So typically, you want to put riskier asset classes in longer dated or tax advantages, tax advantaged accounts like retirement accounts. Or if you have trusts that are set up for future generations, you'll put riskier asset classes in those because you won't be using those investments um, for quite some time. You want to put safer um, tax-advantaged investments, for example, a muni portfolio, portfolio in a taxable um, account, individual account. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And by risk, you're often you're talking about stocks or particular kinds of stocks. No, it it's it stocks, particular kind, you know, any. So the, the risk spectrum is the, the safest investments are fixed income, then equities, um, then alternatives sort of on the risk spectrum. That was from safest to riskiest. Yep. Yep. Um, so I think a lot of people um, have kind of gotten, um, uh, you know, I've been a little spoiled in the sense that they didn't have to deal with inflation. And now we are obviously feeling inflation for the first time in 30 years. Um, so, you know, we've got some questions from Hal, for example, on how you insulate your portfolio against inflation. What should you be looking for in, in, in that regard? Look, in, inflation is is the big um, challenge that the Fed is facing right now and why they why they have been on the most aggressive rate hike in, in over 40 years. So, so everyone on, on your call understands that the reason the Fed is, is raising rates so aggressively is to slow growth in the economy to see inflation turnover and start to decline meaningfully. Again, we're building these portfolios not for the high inflation of today, but for the long term. So you want to have, I think, the bigger challenge to investors today um, with the high rates is making sure that you're investing in businesses that can withstand this higher rate environment. Yes, right. Right. So companies that have pricing power or don't have as much debt on their balance sheets and, and things uh, like that. Yes, absolutely. So high quality companies that can maintain their pricing power in these challenging times, companies that have consistent cash flows, strong balance sheets and low debt. Mm -hmm. Those are all things that we're looking for. I mean, typically growth stocks hold up relatively well when economic growth starts to slow. But given the current interest rates and, and given that we think they'll stay higher for longer, um, we may not see the growth stocks hold, hold up as well as we have in previous 
um, economic slowdowns. Mm. And obviously growth stocks have really powered the S&P 500. You know, when we think about sort of the FANG stocks that have really been sort of the stars of the last decade, do you think that the market is pivoting away from those? Yeah. So what used to be the FANG stocks, and, and now we talk about the FAMG stocks, they they drove the market for, for many, many years. In 2020, they contributed more than half of the S&P's overall return. In 2021, they contributed over a quarter of the return. And then in 2022, they contributed to roughly half of the S&P's losses. Remember, that's only 1% of the stocks in the S&P having such a disproportionate influence on the overall market. And yeah, after 2022, we think we think that that's going to dissipate and be more diversified, which is really the intention of having 500 securities in the market. Yes, that's a very good point. So while I want to stay with the inflation um, angle for one more second, because I have a question from Menez who's asking about gold and, and whether that's something to, do, to use um, in this backdrop to diversify your portfolio. Yeah, so we, we're a big believer in a diversified commodity bucket, um, and that's one of the, the few areas that had a really great 2022, um, and they're typical buffers to inflation. So gold um, and other commodities were, were a great buffer um, to inflation, and, and it was reflected in their returns last year. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, there's a there is a big movement towards sort of inve- investing sustainably, and I know you and I have talked about this a little bit before. But Jacques is asking, um, you know, how to invest sustainably in the best opportunities in the current market, um, while st- you know still sort of getting the returns to preserve the wealth and retirement, even with the market volatility and the inflation. So, if you're thinking about investing sustainably, what what do you need to to be mindful of? So the thing that everyone needs to remember. Is investing sustainably, ESG investing, it means very different things to different people. So it's not like you look in Webster's Dictionary and there's one definition that fits that. And ESG investing can be as simple as eliminating a sector from all of your investments to a much more comprehensive overlay in your portfolio. So if you are working with an advisor, I think you need to know what's most important to you and how you want your portfolio to reflect your ESG views and sensibilities, or if it's just one one sector that you want to eliminate from your portfolio. There are really different ways to play that market. There are ESG-focused mutual funds if you're just getting started. And then there are overlays that you can put on on larger, um, more sophisticated portfolios. Yeah, that's and it's great. It's it's not the same thing. The definition is 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 open for a lot of sort of different interpretations. That's a very good point. Um, you know, so- COVID just just to stick on that for one second, COVID brought out a lot of people who were um, not believers in the vaccine. So some of them called me and said, "I want all healthcare out of my portfolio." Or mm-hmm. some people might have called and say. They say, I want all energy out of my portfolio. The other thing to remember with ESG investing is when you eliminate 
certain sectors from your portfolio, you may underperform in the short term when those sectors have meaningful outperformance. Right. Right. So during COVID, healthcare companies had a huge run. Last year, energy companies had a huge run. So it doesn't mean that over the long term, your portfolio will underperform. It's just recognize that you may uh, diverge from the index, the broad yes. index. Yes. And, and, and to your point, it depends on how you sort of implement that sustainability too. A lot of folks take a much more nuanced approach versus sort of restricting entire sectors, which kind of brings up the, you know, the problem that you sort of just highlighted there. Um, yeah. So, I, you know, I think that there's also this this um, fear about sort of retaining your wealth in retirement, you know, after you've accumulated all this wealth. I um, mean, there's obviously different um, pitfalls out there. What are some of the things that you've seen that can trip people up in retirement? So in retirement, I think you just have to have reasonable expectations of what you can spend from your portfolio to maintain the corpus. You know, you you want that that money to last your lifetime. And there will probably be some expenses that are unanticipated. So having a reasonable spend rate from your corpus and, and the advice that we give to clients is if you think about spending four to five percent of your investable assets on an after-tax basis, that, that's a reasonable number to maintain your underlying portfolio. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, it's people who need or want to spend more than their portfolio can support and put themselves in the position of running out of money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've got a lot of questions on the retirement front. So Kirsten's <laughs> asking, what is the best way to ensure multiple streams of income um, in, by retirement? So when we think about taking um, income from a portfolio, and and we spent a lot of time re-educating our clients in the last decade, you think about income and appreciation. So in the last decade, we really had to look at income and appreciation for clients to use for their living expenses. Now that yields have come back, you can think more about income from your fixed income portfolio because that's finally offering a a healthy return. But you can think about appreciation in your stock portfolio. You can think about income that you're going to get from your fixed income portfolio. And today there are even some alternative investments, some private equity, some private debt that offer income streams much sooner than um, traditional private equity or private debt investments, which historically have been very illiquid for quite some time. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a question that Patricia was asking. If you think that those alternatives are really needed to preserve wealth and, and retirement given sort of where long-term returns are expected for the market. So uh, that's a really good question, Rashma. And there has been a huge emphasis in the market on alternative investments. And I think that what's important to remember is from 2009 to 2021, the return, the annualized return for the stock market was 16%. The long-term return for the stock market since 1928 is 9%. And we think the market is headed back towards long-term historical returns, you know, in the high single digits. And we think that the place to um, achieve double-digit higher returning assets is in the alternative asset 
class space. And what's great about it today is that there are so many different ways to access it. So it's more accessible to more investors. And there are also more liquid strategies for people who don't want to be locked up for as long as a traditional private equity or private debt investment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So I'm going to I'm going to pivot you because we've got a couple of questions about sort of art and collectibles and and you know how you would sort of value art and what are sort of the, you know, 20 year sort of um, horizon for sort of investing in collectibles. How do you think about these things as part of your portfolio? Uh, coll- so collectibles have been a great um, increasing asset class for a very long time. The problem with them is that they're very illiquid. So when we think about collectibles, we think about them as a client's whole wealth picture and in terms of trust and estate planning. But we don't think about those collectibles as being useful as part of an investable portfolio that you can live off of and that will benefit you economically in retirement. Mm-hmm. It might it will benefit you by hanging on your walls and being beautiful. Um, but for practical purposes, we look at a client's investable portfolio and try to invest that to meet their their goals at every stage of their life. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know you work with multiple generations and I think we've got a lot of questions from folks here on um, how to instill good money habits and investment lessons to younger generations, especially because there is, um, it seems like at least the Gen Z is not so interested um, in, in institutions and they are putting more trust in things like Bitcoin and other investments, crypto, for example. Um, how do you sort of, you know, talk to this population about these trends and, and what are some of your concerns about sort of the, the I guess, the fanfare over things like crypto? Well, luckily for me and perhaps for the parents of, of Gen Z, um, the market has taught them a lesson. <laughs> That's true. Right? Um, we didn't. We didn't have to do anything but but pass on the the newspaper headlines. Um, and I think that good money habits really does start at home. So if you talk at the dinner table about saving money and the importance of saving money, if you show if you have a philanthropic desire or endeavor, if you instill that in your children from a young age, whether it's actually going as a family and volunteering somewhere or talking to them about giving philanthropically and what's important to you as a family and as they get older, incorporating some of their beliefs and their philanthropic desires into your family giving. I think that's a really good place to start teaching um, future generations about investing. And, And through philanthropy and you know, investing, you can teach them about the value of diversification um, to protect you yeah. from from huge downfalls like like we've just seen. I mean, such a good point. Um, so I have a question here from Crystal who's asking, what's the easier way to get my college-age student engaged or invested in the market to start building a portfolio? So for those folks who want to get their, you know, young adults into the market, do you have any thoughts on sort of ways to do that beyond sort of talking to them about it? Well, you can talk to them. You can involve them in your philanthropy to the extent that you have a foundation. You can bring them on the board. You can share the investments with them. You can encourage them if they have a job to 
help them set up an account to start putting money aside. You can share with them. You know, I will speak to my clients, children and grandchildren, just as an investing 101, not because they're going to be my clients today, but just to help, you know, be a valued resource to them. A lot of kids in high school participate in stock competitions. Mm -hmm. We'll talk to those kids about what to think about when you're looking at companies and what makes for a healthy investment. Any way you can kind of key into their interests and turn it into a learning experience without telling them it's a learning experience, I I think would be... um, a good way to try to do it. Yeah, I think those are all good points. Um, okay, so we are, we've got a whole slew of questions and they're kind of um, in different areas. So if you don't mind a little lightning rod around of <laughs> questions here. Um, okay, I have my seatbelt on. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for going along, Holly. Um, so we've got a question about from Hal about real estate. So how are you thinking about real estate with rates rising and as a potential source of income and investment return? Yeah, so real estate, if if it's a real estate company that relies a lot on leverage and debt, um, it's going to be more challenging. So again, you want to make sure if it's a corporate real estate investment with rental income that it's, you know, in in a good location, student housing tends to be attractive. Um, But you want a diversified portfolio so that you're not... um, caught off guard or subject to any one weakness within the whole real estate sector. Real estate is is a robust sector with many different components. And so I think a diversified portfolio would would offer you um, some protection. Yeah. Um, So I I imagine you get this question from your clients often, and I know it's a debate within our own newsroom, but Rosario's asking why everyone is obsessed with getting inflation under 2%. Why why can't we live to tolerate 4%, for example, for the next 12 to 18 months? I mean, how are you guys thinking about where the Fed will end with rates and and, and that entire sort of trajectory? Well, Reshma, I think we are going to have to live with a higher inflation number for the next 12 to 18 months. I mean, the long-term target for inflation is is 2%, maybe 2.5%. That seems to be consensus. But while they had hoped that this rate hike cycle was going to have a faster effect of of bringing um, inflation down, the labor market has proven incredibly resilient and strong and sticky. And so it's taking much longer for, you know, for the economy to slow and for inflation to come down. So we are living and we have been living in a much higher inflationary environment. And I think for the next 12 to 18 months, we're, we're going to have to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's that's I think that's it. Something that the market is still trying to digest, but I that that sounds right to me based on what everyone else seems to be saying as well. Yeah, um, I mean, I agree with you. The market's digesting it, but look, with the market's gone off to a very strong start this year, even in spite of the fact that inflation is so yeah. so high. Yeah. Um, okay, so I'll leave you with this one because it, it always seems to be a question: uh, Is crypto dead as an investment? I mean, how are you guys been thinking about crypto? So crypto is, um, I don't think it's dead. I think it needs to be better understood and it needs to be more thoughtful about how it's implemented in portfolios. I think when people think about an investment or an asset class is a get rich quick scheme, 
you know, I'm going to put all my money here and it's going to go up a million percent immediately. That is a huge cause for concern. So as a concept, it's not dead, but is how to implement it thoughtfully and responsibly in client portfolios. That's where we're doing a lot of work to make sure that we do it in a, in a thoughtful um, in a thoughtful way so as not to impose too much risk on client portfolios and, and hopefully still offer them some outsized returns. Yeah, that's great. Well, I, I have a, a ton of questions, but we are at, are at the end of our time. And I, I feel like you gave us so many practical sort of tips on, on actually finding ways to kind of build wealth um, slowly, you know, for all, all sorts of people. So thank you so much for, for um, coming on, Holly. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Reshma. It's been fun. Thank you all for tuning in. And thanks again, Holly, for being here. Tomorrow, there will be a special edition of Market Watch, digging into President Biden's economic agenda. Victor Rekolidis, money and politics reporter for Market Watch, and Bharat Ramamurti, who is a deputy director at the National Economic Council and an advisor for strategic economic communications, quite a handful there, um, will be discussing President Joe Biden's economic priorities. Thank you all for listening. Be well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.